Well, good morning. I want to say what a great day it is to be here today and what a, what a tremendous opportunity and privilege and honor it is for, for me to get to stand in front of you this morning and to, to, to study God's Word and to get to share some thoughts with you. Uh, as, as it's been mentioned this morning, Edwin is our usual preacher. Uh, he's off at a meeting today, so uh, the elders had asked me to, to fill in for him, and I appreciate that opportunity, and, and hopefully we'll be able to, to open the Scriptures here this morning and, and to study some things that will be, that will be beneficial for all of us as we, as we strive towards that goal of, of making it to heaven and, and to being with our Lord and our Savior again. Now, I, I've titled this lesson, Important Battles. And as many of you know, I, I just moved here from, from Houston, Texas, uh, several months back. And, and one thing that has impressed me with this area is the history that, that this area, this part of Tennessee has, especially the Civil War history. And no, to me, nothing could be studied in Franklin, Tennessee without me first beginning looking at the important battle that was here. And actually, once we look at that battle, I think we'll be able to, to see some things by looking at some other important battles in the Bible that will also help us become better Christians. But first off, oops, the night was November. You can't see that up there. It looks like uh, it's, it's too high. But the night was November 30th, 1864. And as you know, right over here on Columbia Avenue, right at the Carter House, the federal forces for the North had, had entrenched themselves and had taken up position because there was a force of approximately 18, about 19,000 Confederates that were ready to, to attack. They had, it was the Army of Tennessee. They had come up from Alabama, up through Spring Hill, and they were going to attack the federal soldiers headed on to Nashville. The idea was they wanted to cut them off before they got to Nashville because once they got to Nashville, there was another 40 or 50,000 troops in Nashville awaiting. So General Hood, who was the general for the South, he decided that he was going to, to cut the federal forces off at Franklin. The federal forces entrenched themselves, and they were about 22,000. Now, as, as I said, they, they had entrenched them, themselves around the outskirts of Franklin. They had dug themselves in, and at that time, that was a, that was a difficult task for the Confederates to overcome. But they were going to attack anyway. Now, the Confederate troops... They attacked for about five hours. It started about four o'clock in the afternoon and it went on till about nine o'clock into the evening. And the result of that was, was there was about 8,500 casualties on both sides. There was about 6,500 Confederates that either lay dead or wounded on the ground. There was about 2,200 Federal troops that lay dead or wounded. Now, the outcome of this battle, it was really an indecisive battle, although they, they said that the, the federal troops uh, could claim the victory. They went ahead and they, they retreated and they withdrew to Nashville 
And once they made it to Nashville, of course, history then brought the conclusion of the Army of the Tennessee to an end. When the Army of Tennessee went up to Nashville, they were, they of course were attacked by a more superior force and they were defeated. Now I know there's a lot more details involved and our purpose this morning is not to study about the Battle of Franklin, but I want to draw some points out of that. You've heard actually in the news uh, as of recent about some battles that are going on over in Afghanistan. And all of the experts, the general that's in charge over there, is saying that he would like to have more troops. Well, what would have happened in this battle if the other side, if the Confederates would have had, say, three times the troops? If they would have had nearly 60,000 going against 22,000, their chances for, for defeating the Federals would have improved. What if they'd have had four times? What if they'd have had six times the number of troops? Now, to visually be able to see this, I've, I've put a map up here. You can't really, the, the top of it is, is cut off. But each one of those little blue squares is approximately 1,000 federal troops. This is the city of Franklin. Okay, uh, Down here at the very bottom is Winstead Hill, where the Southerners planned out their attack. And here are the, the southern forces that are going to attack. So each one of those little squares, they represent a 1,000 troops. you got about 19,000 going against 22,000. Pretty even battle. Now, as I said earlier, what if we would have added two times more troops? What about three times more troops? How about four times more troops? five times, or even six times more troops. You can see now visually what the odds would have been. But now let's throw another wrinkle into this, and now we're going to get into Scripture here in just a moment. What would have happened, whoops, what would have happened if we would have removed all of those federal troops, but say 300? If we would have had 135,000 Confederate troops facing 300 federal troops, what would you have thought would have been the outcome? The odds for the federal troops would have been pretty impossible. Now is where I want to bring it back to the Scriptures. There was a battle in the Bible that took place Back in the book of Judges, and if you would, flip over to Judges chapter 6, beginning in verse 1. Now, growing up, this was one of my favorite Bible stories to read. It's, the, it's, it's about Gideon and the obstacles that Gideon faced against the Midianites. And picking up here in verse 1, actually the end of, of chapter 5, it said, So the land had rest for 40 years. Then the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord. So the Lord delivered them into the hand of Midian for seven years. 
and the hand of Midian prevailed against Israel because of the Midianites. The children of Israel made for themselves dens, the caves, the strongholds which are in the mountains. And so it was, whenever Israel had sown, Midianites would come up, also Amalekites and the people of the east would come up against them. Then they would encamp against them and destroy the produce of the earth as far as Gaza and leave no sustenance for Israel, neither sheep, nor ox, nor donkey. For they would come up with their livestock and their tents, coming in as numerous as locusts. Both they and their camels were without number, and they would, en- they would enter the land to destroy it. So Israel was greatly impoverished because of the Midianites, and the children of Israel cried out to the Lord. And it came to pass, when the children of Israel cried out to the Lord because of the Midianites, that the Lord sent a prophet to the children of Israel, who said to them, Thus saith the Lord God of Israel, I brought you up from Egypt, brought you up out of the house of bondage, and I delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians, out of the hand of all who oppressed you, and drove them out before you and gave you their land. Also I said to you, I am the Lord your God. Do not fear the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell, but you have not obeyed my voice. So, what we see here is that Israel was distressed because of the hardship caused by the Midianites. Israel was, was they'd done evil in the sight of the Lord. The Lord allowed the Midianites to oppress them. And the Midianites, they appeared to be an insurmountable enemy to the Israelites. They appeared to be this great force. The Israelites were so afraid that they ran and they hid in the mountains, in the caves. Let's go ahead and and continue on. Now the angel of the Lord came and sat under the terebinth tree, which was in Ophrah, which belonged to Joash the Bezerite, while his son Gideon threshed wheat in the, in the wine press in order to hide it from the Midianites. The angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, The Lord is with you, you mighty man of valor. Gideon said to him, O oh my Lord, if the Lord is with us, why then has all this happened to us? And where are all his miracles which our fathers told us about, saying, Did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us and delivered us into the hands of the Midianites. Then the Lord turned to him and said, Go in this, go in this might of yours, and you shall save Israel from the hand of the Midianites. Have I not sent you? So he said to him, O oh my Lord, how can I save Israel? Indeed, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. And the Lord said, to him, surely I will be with you, and you shall defeat the Midianites as one man. So, God told Gideon. Gideon said, I'm from the least tribe in Israel. I'm from my father's house, and I'm the least in my father's house. And the Lord tells him, you're going to defeat these Midianites. And we know, studying later on, that, that they had an army of approximately 135,000. 
135,000. Remember the on the screen above what that looks like? 135,000 troops facing Gideon and the Israelites. But now the Lord, I'm going to I'm going to summarize for you here a little bit. Now the Lord tells Gideon. He says, "Gather the people and bring them down to the brook, and I want you to to watch them how they drink water. And those that get down on their knees and drink, you're going to send them away. Those that 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 bring the water up to their mouth, we're going to keep them. And so it turned out that there was approximately twenty thousand that they sent away. All that were remaining were three hundred. Those 300, God says, we're going to defeat the Midianites with those 300. So what ended up happening? Faith that God could do the impossible caused them to win a great battle. Flip over now to chapter 8. Flip over now to chapter 8. Beginning in verse 10. Now Zebah and Zamuna were at Parkour, and their armies with them, about 15,000, all who were left of the army of the people of the east, for 120,000 men who had drawn the sword had fallen. Then over towards the end of the chapter. Thus Midian was subdued, and then they went on and chased those other 15,000 and destroyed them also. Verse 28. Thus Midian was subdued before the children of Israel so that they lifted their heads no more, and the country was quiet for 40 years in the days of Gideon. You see here, God told Gideon and the Israelites, if you just have faith in me, I will defeat your enemies. So, how does that, how does that relate to us today? What kind of battles are we facing? We face a lot bigger battles. We face the turmoil of sin. Flip over, if you would, to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, beginning in verse 5. For those who live according to their flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. You see, brothers and sisters, there are two things in this life that matter. Spiritual things, And then there's worldly things. And we are in a battle. We are in a battle as Christians as far as what we're going to follow. We are in a battle for our time. We are in a battle for what we watch. We are in a battle for who we associate with. We are in a battle 
of what we put in our bodies. We're in a battle of what we put in our minds. All of these things can separate us from God. Go ahead and read verse verse 6. For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. You see, if we focus our minds on the Scriptures, on the Spirit, of the way God communicates to us, if we put our minds on these things, we focus on these things, these will separate us from, from the world. Verse 13, For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. As I said, we are in a battle. And it is so hard for us. Even once we become Christians, Paul says over in, in chapter 7, verse 15, For what I am doing I do not understand. For what I will to do, that I do not practice. But what I hate, that I do. If then I do what I will not to do, I agree with the law that it is good. But now it is no longer I who do it, but the sin that dwells in me. For I know that in me, that is in my flesh, nothing good dwells. For to will is present with me, but how to perform what is good I do not find. For the good that I will to do I do not do, but the evil that I will not to do, that I practice. Do you have any sins in your life? Do you regret things you've done? Do you wish that you could go back and make a decision over again? Paul says to us that we're in a battle, although he doesn't use those specific words, but that's what it is. We are in a battle. And each decision that we make, each thing that we do, each thought that we have, we are under the battle with our flesh. We are under the battle with Satan. Satan wants to gain control of our minds. Young people. Music you listen to. And I was your age once. I listened to music. Music I shouldn't have listened to. That's going to corrupt your mind. Things you watch on TV, that will corrupt your mind. Those are important battles that we face. Friends that we pick, those are all important things. Oftentimes, though, as Paul says, we don't intend on, on sinning. We don't intend on doing things that are wrong. It happens, and then we look back and we say, well, where did that come from? I'm better than that. I know better than that. Where did that come from? We're in a battle. Flip over to back in chapter 8, verses 31 through 39. What shall we say then to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? 
He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all these things? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died and furthermore is also risen. Who, even at the, who is even at the right hand of God who also makes intercession for us? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword as it is written? For your sake we are killed all day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Yet in all these things we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. You see, just like the battle that Gideon faced, no matter what sin it is that you face, there may be there may be those in here today that, which God forbid, have committed adultery. There may be those in here today who are hooked on pornography. There may be those in here today that are hooked on alcohol or drugs. There is salvation, though, in Jesus. There is salvation, though, in the faith that we have in Jesus that God raised him from the dead. And we're going to study here in just a moment what kind of power that actually is. And if we can have that same faith in God as what he describes here in the Scriptures, we can overcome virtually any sin. There is no sin that is stronger than God is. Now, let's flip over to, to Matthew, because I'd like for you to understand how this faith that God talks about, how this faith can help us be stronger. But I think to do that, we need to look in Matthew Chapter 27, Matthew chapter 27, beginning in verse 62. On the next day which followed the day of preparation. Now, let me kind of lead you up to this point. Jesus, our Lord, has been crucified. And this is... This is this is leading up to prior to him being raised from the dead. It says, on the next day, verse 62, Matthew, Matthew 27, verse 62, on the next day which followed the day of preparation, the chief priests and Pharisees gathered together to Pilate, saying, Sir, we remember while he was still alive how that deceiver said, after three days I will rise. Therefore, command that the tomb be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples come by night and steal him away and say to the people, he has risen from the dead. 
so the last deception will be worse than the first. So the chief priests, the Pharisees, the powers and authorities at that time went to Pilate and said, Give us a guard, because this Jesus, this deceiver they called him, he is, his disciples are going to come steal him away at night. They're going to make it seem like he has been risen from the dead, and we want to put a stop to that. So give us some guards so we can post outside of his tomb so that can't happen. Why did they say that? Why did those men say that? Because death can seem like an impossible thing to overcome. They didn't believe that God or Jesus would actually rise from the dead. Death is a permanent thing. And if you think about it, I know there's been stories of people in the news that that have supposedly come back to life. But those individuals, typically, it was just for a few moments that that had occurred. We don't have any reported history of any one individual that has been put into a grave, that has been buried, and that has ever risen from the dead other than our Lord and our Savior. And there is a power that raised Him from the dead through God our Father. And we as Christians, when we are baptized, we have that same faith. We believe that God raised Jesus from the dead. Now, as I said, the powers and authorities at that time, the Pharisees, they said Jesus couldn't be raised from the dead. However, we know that Jesus was raised from the dead. Flip over to Romans chapter 6, verse 23. Back over to Romans chapter 6, and verse 23. And I'm going to tie these things together. Now, death, as I said, was one thing that was believed to be an impossibility to overcome. And sin is death. It says in Romans 6.23, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So this death that Jesus died, and the power that God displayed to raise Him from the dead, if our sins are death, then wouldn't it make good sense that if we had faith in that same power that we could overcome the death of sin? Flip over, if you would, now to 1 Corinthians. 
Back to the verses that Brian had read earlier for us. We're going to read a little bit further than that. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, beginning in verse 1. Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preached to you, which you also received and in which you stand. By which you are, by which you are saved. If you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you first of all that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures, and that he was seen by Cephas and then the twelve. After that, he was seen by over five hundred brethren at once of whom the greater part remain to the present, but some have fallen asleep. After that, he was seen by James and all the apostles. Last of all, he was seen by me as one born out of due time. What Paul is testifying about right now is he is giving witness to the fact that our Lord and our Savior was raised from the dead. He said that all the apostles had seen him, there were over 500 other brethren that had seen him after he was raised from the dead. And then back in Acts, where we can read of the account where even Paul himself, at a later time, saw Jesus was raised from the dead. Let's continue. For I am also the least of the apostles who am not worthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God I am what I am, and His grace towards me was not in vain. But I labored more abundantly than they all, than they all. yet not I, but the grace of God which was with me. Therefore, whether it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believe. He's talking about Christ's resurrection here, and the gospel that that resurrection represents. Now, if Christ is preached that He has been raised from the dead... How do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, then our preaching is empty, and your faith is also empty. Yes, and we are found false witnesses of God, because we have testified of God that he raised up Christ, whom he did not raise up, if in fact the dead do not rise. For if the dead do not rise, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, risen, your faith is futile. You are still living in your sins. You see, brothers and sisters, it's that faith, that faith in Christ, that faith in the power of God to raise Christ from the dead, it's that faith that we have that will defeat our sins. It's that faith in God. It's that faith that gives us salvation when we are baptized. When we go in front of a group of people and we confess that we believe that Jesus Christ is our Savior. It's that faith when we go down into the water and we're buried and we come up out of the water. It is that faith that conquers sin. Now, let's go ahead and wrap this up. What about you? What about your condition? 
whether you have, have become a baptized believer and have gone down into the grave of baptism, but for whatever reason you have gotten off the path, or what about if you've never obeyed the gospel? What about your condition at this time? Are you fighting that battle that we talked about earlier? Are you fighting that battle with sin that we talked about earlier? Are there things in your life that you struggle with on a daily basis? Let's go ahead and read one more time. Let's look at the realism of Christ's death. Flip over, if you would, to John chapter 20. John chapter 20. Beginning in verse 19. Now here, Jesus has been raised from the dead. He's made an appearance to Peter, to Mary, to others. But there's one individual. There's one individual, an apostle of all things. There's one individual that says, until... I put my finger in his wounds. I will not believe. Let's read about that. Beginning in verse 19. Then the same day at evening, being the first day of the week, when the doors were shut, when the, where the disciples were assembled for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in the midst and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. So Jesus said to them again, Peace to you, as the Father has sent me, I also send you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. Now Thomas called the twin, one of the twelve, was not with them when Jesus came. The other disciples therefore said to him, we have seen the Lord. So he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the print of the nails, and put my finger into the print of the nails, and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. There was a big element at that time that did not believe that Jesus was, had been raised from the dead. The powers and authorities, the Pharisees, you heard what they did back in Matthew. They wanted to put a guard outside of Jesus' tomb so they couldn't say, hey, the disciples came and stole Jesus' body away. They didn't believe that, that he could be raised from the dead. His own apostle, Thomas, did not believe that he could be raised from the dead. But what happens? And after eight days, his disciples were again inside, and Thomas with them. Jesus came, the doors being shut, and stood in the midst and said, Peace to you. Then he said to Thomas, Reach your finger here, and look at my hands, and reach your hand here and put it into my side. Do not be unbelieving, but believing. Picture yourself standing there with the Lord, standing there with these holes in his hands. 
with these holes in his feet, with a spear stuck in his side. How would you feel now when you said, hey, unless I stick my finger into him, I'm not going to believe. How would you feel now? Look at what Thomas, look at what his response was. And Thomas answered to him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Thomas, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. There is no doubt in my mind that not every one of us standing or sitting in this building here today, that if our Lord and our Savior was right here next to us, that we would not believe in His resurrection. But what does Jesus say about those who have not seen Him? Blessed are those who believe who have not seen Him. What about you? What is your condition today? Let's look, let's look at one final section of Scripture. Let's look over to the very first sermon that was taught. And I know the points that are usually made about this sermon, but let's look and see what Peter's really saying here. Acts chapter 2, beginning in verse 22. Acts chapter 2 beginning in verse 22. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves also know, him being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands, have crucified, and put to death, whom God raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be held by it. For David says concerning him, I foresaw the Lord always before my face, for he is at my right hand, that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart rejoiced and my tongue was glad. Moreover, my flesh also will rest in hope. For you will not leave my soul in Hades, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. You have made known to me the ways of life. You will make me full of joy in your presence. Men and brethren, let me speak freely to you of the patriarch David, that he is both dead and buried, and his tomb is with us till this day. What's Peter saying here? Peter's telling these Jews they had faith in the patriarch David. They're saying that they had faith in the old ways. Peter's telling them that can't get you salvation. What gets you salvation is the faith in Jesus Christ our Lord being resurrected. That is what gets you the salvation. He says David's bones are still with him to that day. Jesus' wasn't. 
Nobody knows where Jesus' bones were because they weren't there. He was resurrected. Therefore, being a prophet, knowing that God had sworn with him an oath that the fruit of his body, according to the flesh, he would raise up the Christ to sit on his throne, he foreseen that it spoke concerning the resurrection of the Christ, that his soul was not left in Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus... God has raised up, of which we are all witnesses. Therefore, being exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he poured out this which you now see and hear. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he says of himself, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart, and Peter and the rest of the apostles men said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? Then Peter said to them, Repent, and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of your sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit for the promises to you and your children and to all who are far off, as many as our Lord will call. Brothers and sisters, baptism is about faith. Baptism is about the faith and the resurrection of our Lord and our Savior. It's about defeating sin. It's about winning that battle that the Spirit has with the flesh.